0: Okay, so I've been asked to advertise the Department of Chemistry's Fourth Fridays, but those were cancelled last year due to COVID, and I've never been to one, so I guess I can't really do this ad.
1: Hey, we've been to a Fourth Friday. Yeah, they're the best.
0: Great! Well, I think I've got one thing figured out. Whatever these are, they occur on the Fourth Friday of the month.
1: Nope, I mean sometimes they do, but they can occur any Friday at 4pm.
0: But they're called Fourth
1: Fridays. Yes, I guess when they started out, they were always on a Fourth Friday but now they're just on any Friday at 4 p.m. Maybe they're on the fourth Friday of the month more often than other Fridays, but they can move around So
0: That's confusing. What happens at a fourth Friday?
1: Well, we have some food and drinks, and it's a time to relax and talk outside the lab. Sometimes PAX sets up their yard games or a ping-pong table. Sometimes we celebrate something specific, like annual awards or mole day.
0: That sounds kind of fun.
1: It's really fun. Fourth Fridays. Not always on the fourth. Always fun.
0: That's it. That's the commercial. When does a chemistry student become a chemist? Is it when you graduate from college? When you start your first professional job? Does the answer lie in your own experience? How many hours you spent sweating into an Erlenmeyer flask? How many scars you have from accidentally burning yourself with liquid nitrogen? Truthfully, I think it's something less tangible and more internal than any of those options. In college, I minored in English. Most of my friends with this major didn't have much of a problem calling themselves writers and poets. They didn't agonize over whether or not they deserved the title. They just wrote, and so we're writers. But I had a pretty tough time calling myself a chemist, even though I spent almost all of my free time between classes working in a chemistry lab. I still do have a tough time calling myself a chemist, even though I'm currently pursuing an advanced degree in the field. It was this line of questioning why I feel so uncomfortable calling myself what I am. That got me interested into the topic of imposter syndrome and especially how it affects graduate students. Imposter syndrome first came onto the academic scene as the imposter phenomenon, a term coined by doctors Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes in their seminal 1978 article entitled The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. Although this article outlines imposter phenomenon as it is experienced in women, we know now that these set of symptoms are not limited to this population alone. In fact, most people, no matter their gender, sexual identity, race, or class, will experience imposter syndrome at some point in time. According to Clance and Imes, individuals who experience imposter syndrome in an academic setting, quote, maintain a strong belief that they are not intelligent. In fact, they are convinced that they have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise. For example, students often fantasize that they were mistakenly admitted to graduate school because of an error by the admissions committee. Numerous graduate students state that their high examination scores are due to luck, to misgrading, or to the faulty judgment of professors. Self declared imposters fear that eventually, some significant person will discover that they are indeed intellectual imposters. It doesn't seem like it takes much convincing to have these kinds of doubts. All you really need to develop imposter syndrome is a tendency to externalize the causes of your success and internalize the causes of your failures. I can definitely recognize this behavior in myself and in my peers. We're all students during the COVID-19 pandemic. Probably the single most universal external cause of academic failure in the history of the world, maybe. And yet, in the past year, if I didn't do as well as I'd have liked on an exam, the first words in my head definitely weren't, well, I did my best given the circumstances. However, when I've done really well on an exam in the past year, my first thought is usually along the lines of, well, the professor must have liked me and taken pity, given the circumstances. The idea that these thought patterns are a manifestation of a well-studied phenomenon is simultaneously reassuring and unsettling. It's reassuring because at least I know that I'm not the only one who struggles with these thoughts, but it's unsettling because I still don't fully understand where they come from. So to obtain a better picture of the root cause of these thoughts and imposter syndrome at large, I interviewed Dr. Cynthia whitehead Labou, an Emory University psychologist who has much experience treating and defining imposter syndrome enjoy.
2: I'm Cynthia whitehead Labou. I'm a psychologist and I'm Associate Director of Clinical Services at the Emory University Counseling and Psychological Services.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Again, (laughs) really excited to uh, discuss this important topic. So just to start out, how would you define imposter syndrome?
2: So when we think about imposter syndrome, if we use that word imposter, that usually means someone who's pretending to be someone who they're not. Somehow this person is not who you know we think they are. And if we think about imposter syndrome, we can apply that to the self, that there's a gap between who you think you are and how other people may see you. And so it's like a form of self-doubt, doubting your capabilities, doubting... Um, you know your accomplishments. Um, folks with imposter syndrome often are burdened by the worry that they're going to be found out. That someone's going to find out that they are not what they ought to be. That they don't deserve to be in whatever place they're in—graduate program, job, etc. The interesting thing about imposter syndrome is it often happens with individuals who are quite accomplished, but. With every success, with getting into graduate school, with getting the fellowship, with getting the job, they feel like somehow they didn't quite earn it. And so it can be terrifying to at any moment be thinking somehow it's all going to be taken away. um, I'm going to fail. I really don't belong here. And And the thing of it is, is you actually do. If we can look at it realistically, but that's often goes with it. There's difficulty with owning past success and building your self-efficacy and your self-confidence. The other thing that's hard about imposter syndrome is that people don't usually talk about it. (laughs) It's a way that you suffer in silence. So often folks who have imposter syndrome, they assume that it's easy for everybody else. They assume that they're the only ones who really had to spend a lot of time working out that problem. And they think, oh, I bet everybody did this in a day. And it took me two days. Unbeknownst to you, it might've taken somebody else three, but you're not going to know that. And not that it's about comparisons, but you know, but you judge yourself on thinking what other people are doing. And it's usually you're in the diminished position. You feel like somehow everybody's doing it better than you. It's easier for them. And you're the only one that's struggling.
0: You know, I know this is a podcast, but if anybody was you know, sitting in the Zoom room right now, they would just have seen me throughout that entire definition nodding. <laughs> I, you know, I can so empathize with so many of those feelings of like, right. oh, this took me so much longer than everyone else. Or like my, I'm so much worse at calculus than everyone else in this class. So that negative self-talk is just really pervasive. So I guess kind of uh, branching off of that then um, mm-hmm. about, you know, a, a lot of people are having sort of the same ideas struggling alone with imposter syndrome. Do you think that it generally manifests in the same way for everyone? Or are there certain manifestations (coughs) of imposter
2: syndrome? There are different manifestations and types. So there are a few that I'll mention. And so one is feeling like you have to be the smartest person in the room. You know, for some people through elementary, through junior high, through high school, maybe they have been like a genius and people have sort of projected on, oh, you're so smart. And so as you matriculate, You know, maybe it was easier to do that, like in high school or college. But then when you get to the graduate level, you find yourself struggling, but yet still feeling the burden. And this doesn't mean you're not extremely capable, but that gap between your capabilities and, you know, I finally got into a level where I don't know everything. I need some help. It can look like somebody who feels like they have to go it alone. Um, This can be someone who really struggles in group projects because it's like, I've got to do this by myself. I don't trust other people. You know, another way that it can manifest. A lot of times people with imposter syndrome feel like they have to be perfect. Now, the backdrop of that, when you are a perfectionist is you often don't feel like you've done enough. In fact, what can feed that perfection and that sense of striving is I've never done enough. I never feel like I'm enough. I've had clients who were like amazing and we've had to work and I've had to support them around like doing three drafts instead of five or six. And the thing of it is, is that's not benign. That take, it takes time to do six drafts and to keep messing with it. Part of the work with this is helping the client to internalize that knowledge about themselves, to give them momentum, to keep moving forward. The other thing about perfection that I think is so harsh is that when you're a perfectionist, you don't get that capacity to be able to say, you know, I worked hard on this. I earned this. I am so proud of myself. I am enough. I did enough. And then there are sometimes, you know, like life gets more complicated as we get older. And so part of dealing with perfection is moving to a place where you can just do the best you can. But you don't have to be the best. And that's going to look different depending on your circumstances. And, you know, we could use COVID as an example. Do you know what? In this circumstance, in this time, that B plus, boy, is it ever good enough. Against the backdrop of I haven't been anywhere in months. I haven't seen my family. You know, I feel like I'm in a cave by myself. I don't have a roommate. Getting that A under those circumstances is going to challenge you a lot more Than in the time, like before COVID, when you're someone who's a perfectionist, you can really struggle with being able to still feel good about yourself and your accomplishments, but knowing that you cannot be perfect in everything.
0: Definitely. Um, This is just kind of off the cuff, but then I guess in general, do you think that the pandemic has generally had a beneficial effect on imposter syndrome or more negative?
2: Well, I think it depends on the person and on if they've had a chance to talk to other people. Actually, I have a client who um, was a go-getter, you know, worked really hard and could handle it. And we had a frank conversation. It's like, do you feel like you're doing too much? And she's like, no, not really. And she was bringing it. Um, so we had to talk once COVID hit about like how everything was taking more out of her. And she's like, I want to go to the mall. And that's how she said it. She said, if I could just go to the mall, if if I could just go to brunch. And, you know, she was so earnest, kind of like, I didn't realize, you know, but this is, this is here. You ask the question, how people navigated. It. Um, she had a therapist, you know, she had me to validate her and say, you know what, what we didn't realize, what none of us realized, and that we kind of took for granted, all of these things that put gas back in our tank because I think about us as we're not machines and we need gas. And so, you know, we really spent a lot of time talking about how she wasn't at full capacity and was really compromised in her ability to fully renew herself, right. that full renewal of like, I've had a really good time this weekend. Right. Um, and so I think we didn't realize how important those things were. I thought about how much I like buttered pot not the kind that you do in the microwave it's not the same yeah. that hot fresh at yeah. the movie theater
0: oh my gosh yes.
2: <laughs> do you see what i'm saying but you can't get that at home no. yeah <laughs> not the way they do it um and so you know in the, in the, for individuals who maybe had no one to talk to or were like sort of suffering in silence they might have really they may be really beating themselves up for not having done as well or not having had the same amount of energy, and there are reasons for that. So I just, I just think it depends. Like, you know, I think one thing COVID has done is sort of forced people to kind of, kind of go, like really look at. So what, I, what are the ways I can take care of myself?
0: Right.
2: It just sort of happened because we were free to live our lives and get that gas, even though we didn't know we were getting it, and to be more intentional about that and to take time and
0: definitely yeah I, I think it's it's taught us all a lot um and i i know personally I, I feel like i've had more time to to think about what i want my life to like look like after covid and, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: the
0: parts that i you know realized that i maybe don't want to bring back with me yes back to normal so yeah,
2: yeah that's right that's right we've saved a lot of money <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. there you go yeah um but I guess kind of going back to just general imposter syndrome. Do you think that there are certain qualities or certain experiences in people's life that would predispose mm-hmm. them to having imposter syndrome?
2: Yeah, so um just a few things. It's often related to self-talk, um and how we talk to ourselves internally and also the inner perception that you have of yourself. So if you're telling yourself that you're not doing enough, if you attribute whatever you've done to luck or It's because I was wearing a nice outfit or this person's just being nice to me. But no, maybe not. Maybe they really do view you that way. And so folks, you know, who have imposter syndrome have a hard time attributing whatever they've done that is worthy to themselves. Also too, I've already talked about comparing yourself to others and usually assuming that you don't measure up. And so engaging in these behaviors can happen when you, or you're more vulnerable to it when you have diminished esteem. You know, self-esteem is something that colors everything. And I would say in my 30 years of working as a a therapist, I would say 90 plus percent of my clients are dealing with some form of self-esteem issue. So that can um, definitely impact imposter syndrome. And, you know, it can also happen when you have not received validation that was merited and that also relates to self-esteem too. If you've babysat or been around like small children, um, they they see themselves through the eyes of other people because they don't have the cognitive capacity yet to be able to say, well, am I good or am I bad? <laughs> so if we think about little ones, I mean, really little, if they're being told you're stupid, you're no good, they bring home a 99, that's not good enough. You failed. That can set the stage for someone who is doing brilliantly, not to feel like it's quite good enough. And so that's what I'm saying. If you have not received merited validation, it can be hard to do the self-validation and not to feel like an imposter, even when you are the smartest person in the room, you just don't know it that
0: makes sense. I mean, it, it seems to me that a lot of imposter syndrome is in this idea of like the reality that you see isn't mm-hmm. something that you necessarily take information from <laughs> mm-hmm. when you're forming your opinions about yourself. Like no matter mm-hmm. how well you're doing in a class, you could always be doing better or that's somebody's right. always doing better than you. And, and you don't, you know, take the time to realize that that's, you know, the narrative that you're forming. Um, that's right. So, so I guess I'm kind of interested then to know whether your patient's often do open up about experiencing imposter syndrome? Like, do they name it? Or do they generally come with other concerns?
2: Yeah, I don't know if they always necessarily name it as that. But while you can tell that that's exactly what it is, (laughs) this is someone who has not developed the capacity to sort of take a realistic stock of their abilities to own their accomplishments, to feel good about what they've done, Part of the backdrop of um, imposter syndrome is that negative self-talk. It's usually very automatic, and it's harmful. Like, oh, well, it's just thinking. But whatever we're thinking about something, it can really determine how we feel about it. There's a theorist, Albert Ellis, and he proposed the ABCs of emotion. And so, basically, what that is is your beliefs about activating events determines your emotional consequences. And so in any given circumstance, it's not the event. It's what you think about it. So you have two people who got like a 97 on a test. You know, one person's going to be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It was the hardest thing I ever did. I studied for days for this and I'm so proud of myself. And then you'll have someone else who's like, "Mm, well, not so much, you know, and people might look at them in astonishment. Like, what are you, are you kidding me? Great. But you didn't just pass. You aced it. Well, no, I didn't because I didn't get a hundred. And there are people who that's how they think.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I'm going to qualify this. There are, are some circumstances where um, so let's take medical school, for example. You know, when you're one of the 10,000 applying for 150 slots, that straight A's in 98th percentile in the MCAT. That might be what's required, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: (laughs) you know, I don't want to put forth that, you know, I wouldn't be realistic with a client, but then that doesn't mean they're not capable and it doesn't mean they're not smart. It doesn't mean that at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, even in those contexts where you're maybe in a really competitive situation, like applying to med school, I think Mm -hmm. there's a certain point where you have to relinquish control and just be like, I've I've worked as hard as I possibly can. That's
2: right. That's right. That's right. That's all you can do. Let's say if you've gotten everything you've ever wanted and you've always been the best. That's a heavy burden. You know, sometimes it's good for people to just go ahead and get their B they can get it over with. (laughs) And release themselves, you know, from the straight A's since middle school, you know, I mean, but if you, as you matriculate and continue on in life, you might not always get the job that you want. You might not always get into the program you wanted to get into. That doesn't mean that you're less than as a person, you know, we all have disappointments and part of what therapy, you know, hopefully can do is help you to sort of be balanced about how you navigate disappointment. You know, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't. You know, we all have to cry sometimes. But hopefully with the tools and skills you've learned and your self-knowledge and what you've gained during our time together, my hope, and it'll be a success if you don't have to cry as long. And you can look at your situation in a balanced way and come back to that state of well-being and feeling good about who you are and, and the effort that you made and what you did.
1: Applying to graduate school in chemistry can be an exciting next step it can also be intimidating. At the Department of Chemistry at Emory University, we never want understanding the application process to be a barrier for students. That's why we developed Applying 411. Applying 411 is a resource for prospective graduate students applying to the Graduate School in Chemistry at Emory or elsewhere. We cover topics like understanding funding packages, writing a personal statement or diversity statement, requesting reference letters, and even making the most of recruitment weekends. We also have an explanation of Grexit, the movement that is leading some schools to drop the GRE as an admissions requirement. Emory's Department of Chemistry is proud to be a part of Grexit and does not require or allow the submission of GRE scores during the application process. If you have questions about applying to graduate school in chemistry, check out Applying 411.
0: Yeah. So h- how do you help your clients get to that place of well Um, I guess, like what are some techniques that you would use to help them with their imposter syndrome?
2: So first of all, letting go of the need to be perfect, you know, letting go of this, this notion that everything has to work out just right, because things are not always going to work out. That's just You can just count on that, you know? And so how do you navigate when things don't work out? How do you use that ABCs of emotion to like Think about it in a balanced way mm-hmm. um, and you know, grieve what you need to grieve, but not make it be like the die is cast and my the rest of my life's gonna be miserable. That's not true, okay. And that goes hand in hand with recognizing the harmful ways of thinking um, and being active about creating counter statements. If part of your automatic narrative is, you know, I'm stupid, I'm not as smart as other people, to challenge that, like stop, that's yeah. not true. You're at Emory. You got in. That means something. And so to really think about how you're thinking and 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 actively counter those statements, you know, and trying to embrace positive. Because you know the really interesting thing with folks who have imposter syndrome, they they repel often like positive, um, but they take negative in like like there's no filter. Right. And so if it's negative, if it's something that didn't work out, they fully own and attribute that to themselves. It is my fault. I am not good enough. As opposed to when someone's telling you, you did a brilliant job on this. Oh, okay. As opposed to thank you. And inside you're saying, heck yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so looking at the patterns of how your, how your thoughts are, you know, remembering things that you do do well, make me maybe make a list of things that you're proud of, you know, and to maybe refer to that list sometimes and trying to find your strengths and focus on those and look for opportunities to do things that you know, you're good at just to reinforce yourself that, you know, you are capable looking back and looking forward, you know, thinking about what you've done in the past and using that as momentum to be able to tell yourself, I can do this. I've done it before. I can do it again. Because often Um, For the good or the bad, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So if you're someone who's a good student, you put time in, you really study, you really work hard, then that's who you are, you know? And so to own that, that somehow you can do it, whatever the it is. Um, I've already talked about the importance of not sitting in it alone, talking to people, talking to friends, maybe an advisor, maybe family, maybe a therapist, to know that there are so many people that feel the way you do that you're not by yourself. So um, striving to grow your capacity to be in and to bounce back. As I said, you know, in life, things aren't always going to work out for you. So how do you come back from it? And, you know, I would say, you know, finally, you know, increasing your self-awareness about how you're thinking and, you know, remembering, first of all, you're not alone and that you need to have self-compassion. That's so important to not be your own worst enemy. You know, sometimes we're all we have. So if 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 you think of yourself as like, I'm all I've got, you might as well make peace and try to be good to yourself, you know, because there are those times when the only person you have is you. So if you can look in that mirror and be able to say, yes, you did your best. Yes, I am worth something just as I am. And in those times when there's nobody else to tell you, because you may have times like that, when you can tell yourself and mean it, that's priceless. It's not only worth something, it's priceless.
0: Right. Yes, that that is so true. Um, yeah, that, that's really meaningful uh, to develop that self-compassion. I think it's something I've been working on throughout COVID and mm-hmm. really throughout throughout undergrad and grad school in general, because it's not really something that we're often taught. I feel like we're taught to not be like pompous or arrogant, you know, and so mm-hmm. you always have the little voice that's like, "Oh no, 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 no." Like <laughs> that was <laughs> but, but yeah, definitely. That's that's
2: a- Well, one thing to remember, I mean, I think sometimes people are afraid of I want to think too much, I don't want to be narcissistic or, you mm-hmm. know, um but the thing about narcissism is um these are people who perhaps don't quite have the capacity And so there's a boastfulness about it that, you know, you don't protest too much. So confidence can be very quiet and it can be an inner. I don't need anybody else to see that I got this A. I got it. And I feel because I worked my butt off and I'm, yay, you know, and you you might not need to share that with anybody. I mean, of course, we love validation and that's very nice and that's lovely. But I really do believe that moving to a place where however it is you're feeling about yourself comes from the inside out. That is the most powerful. Because as I said, there may be times when there's nobody around to validate you. So you've got to know who you are and love what you know, like period, full stop. Because I think that gives you something to go on with whatever it is you're trying to do.
0: Yeah, well, your clients are very lucky to have you also. Thank you. (laughs) Great to have that voice. Thank Um, you. Encouraging them. But so I, I'm mindful of our time here, and mm-hmm. uh, I just want to ask before we close out, is there anything sure. else that you think, you know, is is necessary to talk about with respect to imposter syndrome?
2: Well, I think I've covered just about everything. One <laughs> thing I want to say um, that, you know, I work at the Counseling Center, and so you, know, you can go to our website. We're Emory University CAPS, and that sounds, stands for Counseling and Psychological Services. And we have a lot of different platforms. We 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 change like Stress Clinic and Anxiety Toolkit, and many of our support groups to be available to students that are all over the country. Because most of us have licenses here in Georgia, so we can't practice across state lines. Mm -hmm. But if you're here in Georgia, you know you can. We have group therapy. We have um, individual therapy. We there's something called timely MD, where every student at Emory can receive up to 12 sessions of therapy at no cost. And there's something through the timely MD once you sign on to that called Talk Now. So if you find yourself feeling like really desperate or like I really need to talk to someone, you can access Talk Now 24 seven. So I wanted to just you just to be aware of our resources. So just go to our website, all of the information's there. And the first step is you would have an initial consultation. That's by phone. And in that, they get a little bit of information about what you're needing. They might make a, go ahead and make a referral, but then the next step would be what we call initial screening. That's a 30 minute appointment, where then we can determine next steps. And so again, you know, check our website out. So just wanted to kind of put a plug in for the services at CAPS. You know, we're here for you either virtually or in person when we get back to being in person. So don't hesitate to contact us if you need
0: us. Great. yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will find that really helpful. Um, And we'll be sure to link
2: the CAPS website in the episode details. Yes, please do. Please do. That'd be great. That'd (laughs) be great. It's been my pleasure to talk with you, Sam. But my parting thought to all of you, you know, keep going. You can do it. Um, you're not alone. Um, just do, 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 the, do what you can do and, and be kind to yourself.
1: Okay. Who Do You Think You Are is a podcast from the Emory University Department of Chemistry. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Samantha Horowitz, with music that was written and performed by Samantha Horowitz and Dominic Cristiano. Special thanks to Communications and Outreach Manager Kira Walsh